The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. houses, apartments, or business buildings, old, run-down, decrepit places, evidence would lead one to believe that a haunting can occur anywhere, at any time, and under any circumstances. My own experiences would indicate that property itself may be haunted, no matter the age of any structures on that property. My own experiences also indicate that building materials could have a type of memory so that hauntings can be transferred as the materials are reused. For instance, in stories that I've told before, I've said that my home now, a mobile home, and the previous home, also a mobile home, have had paranormal experiences in them. Evidence I've gleaned from witnessing some of these events, including seeing a glimpse of a woman in a lacy, high-neck dress, lead me to believe that something tragic may have happened on this property back before or around the turn of the 20th century. The house I grew up in, in Lexington, Texas, was constructed in the 1940s with lumber from a building, and I don't know whether it was a home or a business, from much earlier. There was an addition done in 1960, but that was new lumber and products. But the entire back of the house, three bedrooms, a family room, and a hallway, was where I had strange experiences. The 1960s addition included that family room, one bedroom, and the hallway. 
there were also some odd experiences on some of the accompanying 86 acres, so I may have been witness to multiple eras of history in my life. I've witnessed disembodied voices here on this present property. There are occasions where my wife and I have both heard conversations in the den. I've also heard music, nondescript music, in that room. Something tried to speak to me one night in my bedroom as I was lying down going to sleep, but it came across as a buzzing, and there were no bugs in the room. We've heard footsteps several times in my bedroom. I've seen shadows in my bathroom and have witnessed shadow people peeking around my bedroom doorframe at me and witnessed one peeking out of my kitchen window one night. Later that night, I heard what sounded like a gunshot in my bedroom. It wasn't a loud blast, just a fairly hefty pop about an arm's reach away from my right ear. It sounded like a 22 caliber. And yes, I know what they sound like. I've been shot by one before. I was recording a Facebook Live video out on my carport as it was a rainy day and I was just shooting the breeze. None of my neighbors were outside and as I was speaking, a strange voice said something off behind me. It was caught on camera. In the house I grew up in, I witnessed small bursts of light in the family room when I was in there late at night watching usually spooky TV shows. I had heard during one of those shows that the flashes might have been spirits around me. In my opinion, those flashes of light are what some people now see as orbs. Also in that house, I had a vision, and it's the only way I can describe it, of a being wearing a high-collared cape. Picture Dracula if you will, with two red-eyed wolves beside him. They were standing by my bed. I crab-walked backwards off the bed while screaming, and my mother never heard me, and she was in the next room over. I had a late-night visitor in my other bedroom years earlier, and this visitor left wrinkles on a pair of jeans folded and left on a chair. Do I believe in ghosts? Oh, heck yeah! Do I believe every story I hear? That is difficult to explain. I think some of my stories might sound a bit of a stretch except that I know they happened. I've heard many stories of people's experiences in decades and even centuries old houses. And like many people, I simply nod my head and say, okay, I believe it. Then I hear people tell about moving into homes or apartments that may be a few decades old or even brand new. And they have justifiable fears that they are being visited by or haunted by spirits of the dead. There may be many reasons for these hauntings. Again, the property could be haunted or the area could have some history. Let's remember the idea of the movie Poltergeist. So many places may have been burial grounds and no records might exist, so there's one possibility. Some places may have been the site of unbelievable violence, such as Indian attacks on settlers, attacks on Indian groups by the military, executions of criminals either on the spot or taken out from a town, or the murders of slaves or slaveholders by slaves, or domestic violence. Those taken in the violence might still be haunting the areas of their untimely deaths. We never can tell. We may even go so far as to say that items within a structure or upon a property can be haunted. Some examples of home, property, or items being haunted are as follows. Larrabee Street in Horicon, Wisconsin. I hope I said that right. In 1986, a family named Tallman moved into what they thought was an ideal family home. They had just bought a house in a new development in Larrabee Street in Horicon, Wisconsin. 
The family consisted of Alan, who was a factory foreman, his wife Deborah, their two-year-old daughter Mary Ann, and Deborah's son from a previous relationship, seven-year-old Kenny. Deborah was expecting her third child at the time that the family moved into the house. The family were natives of Wisconsin and with plenty of relatives in the area around Horicon. Not long after they moved in, little things began to bother them. The children would frequently fall ill, while Deborah and Alan would fight over trivial things. Sarah, their second daughter, was born in November of 1986. Deborah had become ill during the pregnancy and was ordered to bed rest, meaning her mother and sister would come over to the house to help out. It soon turned out that neither liked the house and couldn't wait to get out, and Deborah's sister actually became sick when she visited. A kitten bought by the family shared some of the same feelings toward the house and would go insane. Now, some of this just may be cat, but the cat would go zooming across the living room and climb up the door. This usually became more marked at sunset. Alan would shut the cat in the bathroom, but it would howl all night. So one night, after Alan let the cat out of the bathroom, she went bananas again. I'm sorry, but this is funny to me, uh, just the telling of this part of it. She went bananas again and hung from the plaster of the wall in the living room. She soon went to a new home. An evening out for Alan and Deborah ended with a jolt when their babysitter claimed that she and Kenny witnessed a rocking chair moving by itself while they played a game in the kitchen, something Kenny also confirmed. When Sarah was seven months old, Alan and Deborah moved their older daughter Mary Ann into a room with Sarah. The girls shared bunk beds. They took over Kenny's old room and he moved into a smaller bedroom. That night, Kenny witnessed a radio alarm clock given to him by his parents behave strangely. The dial was moving by itself. His parents, upon hearing this, took the alarm clock away. Afterwards, Kenny found it difficult to sleep in his room, complaining of strange noises. All the children were having difficulty sleeping by mid-1987. They would always wake him when their parents went to bed and refused to sleep for a long time. Marianne had apparently gained an imaginary friend whom she would often talk to, which soon turned to nightmares, scaring her. Things were sporadic at this point. Peace would descend for a week, then another week of interrupted sleep due to the children's problems and Deborah and Alan fighting. Alan later attributed his behavior to the house. Deborah also began noticing things around the house, such as the garage door opening by itself, and she began to suffer nightmares, which she was never prone to previously. The dreams frightened her seriously. Alan had a strange experience of his own one day while painting the basement. He had left his paintbrush lying across the paint tray while he went for lunch. When he came back, he found the paintbrush upside down in the paint can. No one else had gone down to the basement while he was gone, and after he cleaned the paintbrush and carried on with his work, he thought he glimpsed a shadow flit across the basement. After that, he called it a day. Another incident in the basement saw the window mysteriously being removed and left on the floor. No valuables had been taken in what appeared to be a break-in, including Alan's expensive hunting rifles. Add to that, anyone coming into the basement would have had to have used a chair to get in and out the window, but no furniture was displaced. Deborah became too scared to go into the basement afterwards. The family bought a dog following this for security, but he too acted strangely, though he remained with the family unlike the cat. 
Significant was the experience Alan's mother had when she looked after the children one night after Alan became ill with a bad sinus infection and had to be taken to the hospital by his wife. The senior Mrs. Tallman shot out of the house as quickly as possible on their return. Like Deborah's mother, she didn't like the house much either and also had had a strange experience the night Alan went to the hospital. She later told him that she had been dozing on the living room couch and was awakened by something. That night when she looked at the window, she found a pair of red eyes staring in at her. They were still there when she blinked. Just before Christmas of 1987, Kenny saw the apparition of a small hideous old woman while he slept in the living room. He woke his mother and both were awake for the rest of the night. This led to a conversation between Alan and Deborah about what was going on in their house. They concluded that all the strange phenomena had to be a ghost and they called in their pastor, Reverend Wayne Dobratz. He told the family he believed that they were haunted by the devil, which scared them, as it should. He asked if any of them had been playing with a Ouija board or holding a seance. He also suggested the family may have been cursed. To counter the haunting, Reverend Dobratz asked the Tallmans to attend church regularly every Sunday, which they hadn't been doing up to that point. They did as the pastor asked. The family also played religious music and said prayers at Dobratz's suggestion. Dobratz also blessed the house, which kept everything quiet until a few days before Christmas. Kenny, again, saw the apparition of the old woman when sleeping in the living room. He had been sleeping there because he was too afraid to sleep in his own room. By this time, the children were too scared to be alone without their mother and followed her everywhere, including the bathroom. Every night was bedlam as the children were so scared, and one night Alan had had enough and screamed at whatever it was to leave his kids alone and pick on him. Not necessarily a good idea. Soon after, in January of 1988, Alan came home from the night shift. He heard a strange wind and a voice calling to him from the garage. He saw red eyes staring back at him, similar to what his mother had seen. He shot into the house, terrified, before quickly realizing the garage was on fire. He went back out to check, but the fire was gone and the garage was normal. When he came back in, his lunchbox, which he had been carrying the whole time and had just placed on the floor, shot across the room apparently of its own accord. Enough was enough and he went to bed, very scared. He woke up Deborah, and they stayed awake the whole night. Things seemed more focused on Alan. He would sleep on the floor of his daughter's room to try and help them sleep as they were so terrified. One night while doing this, he awoke to find a mist rising from the ground. A small apparition with red eyes stared at him, uttering, You're The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Dead. He flew out of the room, so terrified that his lips were blue. Deborah thought he was having a heart attack. He was too scared to tell her anything and could only weep. Deborah called Reverend Dobratz to come quickly. By the time he arrived, the family was in chaos. The girls were upset at the sight of their dad crying, though they hadn't seen what had happened. The pastor urged them to leave and stay with family. The Tallmans returned the next night. Their pastor came over, leading them in prayers and communion. He again told them to play religious music constantly. It was a quiet night. 
Not so the next, however. That night, Alan was on night shift, so his teenage nephew came to stay over. Things began peacefully enough. The children played with their cousin and then went to bed. The cousin slept on the floor of the girls' room, reading them stories to help them settle down. However, the same apparition that had visited Alan reappeared to his nephew. Everyone became hysterical. Kenny said to his mother that the apparition was in the girls' room. Deborah threw things into a bag, rounded up the family, and left. They arrived outside of Alan's work, and Deborah refused to go home. Shortly after this, the police chief of Horicon got wind of what was happening. Word soon spread about the haunting. The police chief, Doug Glayman, decided to investigate as a haunted house wasn't quite something he expected. He spoke to the family and became convinced by their tale. They stuck rigidly to the details every time he questioned them about it. Glayman also managed to liaise with the press when they became interested in the story and did what he could to protect the Tallmans. The police were also needed to deal with the crowds that descended on Larrabee Street to see the haunting for themselves. This was partly thanks to tales of a snowblower driving by itself and walls dripping blood. Not sure where those stories came from. Eventually, the Tallmans sold their house and left Horicon. The new family who took over the house haven't experienced anything for themselves. The most in-depth account of the haunting can be found in two books of the Haunted America series by Michael Norman and Beth Scott. That would be Haunted America and Haunted Heritage. It was also featured in Unsolved Mysteries, and that particular episode is available on YouTube. Various websites and Unsolved Mysteries place the blame for the haunting on the bunk beds used by the girls, while other sites claim it was a hoax. Either way, as stated in the Unsolved Mysteries piece, the bunk beds were apparently destroyed. It has been suggested that Alan and Debbie Tallman might have made up the haunting story to get out of their mortgage. Such accusations have been leveled at haunting victims before, including one case that made it all the way to the People's Court on TV, and even more famously, George and Kathy Lutz from the Amityville Horror Haunting. The Tallman case has even drawn comparisons to the Amityville case, and has some wondering if the comparisons are based on the supposed fact that the Tallmans used it as a basis for their fraudulent ghost story. Despite these accusations, there are reasons to believe the Tallman side of events. Alan and Debbie turned down a $5,000 payday to tell their story to the National Enquirer and also turned down a chance to appear on the Oprah Winfrey Show. The Tallman family also lost about $3,000 after they left the house while giving the house back to the bank. Hardly the actions of someone trying to make a profit. So what do you think, true or fake? Another story is about a place that became known as Bradmar Tudor Manor in, outside of Denver, Colorado. This is a large 20-room mansion and it was originally built in 1920 by a wealthy family for their daughter and no expense was spared. The daughter, Ethel, lived in this mansion that she dearly loved with both her husbands, not at the same time, but one husband, then the next husband. After her second husband died, she continued to live there for another 20 years, but when she died, it fell into disrepair, abandoned by all until Dr. Bradley and family saw it and fell in love with this mansion. The mansion itself was described as a hulking, deserted white elephant. Vandals had taken over and trashed the inside and had broken over a hundred windows. Despite its disastrous shape, 
The Bradleys felt, quote, a quiet feeling of security there, unquote, and bought this unique fixer-upper opportunity. They immediately started a massive restoration project to bring the Bradmar Tudor Manor back into mint condition, sparing no time or expense with the similar attitude and manner that the original builders had felt. Mrs. Bradley had kept a careful record of all the supernormal events, which showed an average of six incidents a month. The Bradleys had noticed a normal pattern, and when something out of the normal happened, they knew that a big event was going to happen in their lives. When forewarned of these life surprises, they also felt a feeling of reassurance that things would work out to their benefit. One of the first incidents had the purpose of letting the living know that they had unseen housemates. While the floors were being sanded when they first moved in, all were sleeping in Dr. and Mrs. Bradley's suites way in the front of the manor. The interior decorator, Mrs. Bradley's cousin, who was living with them, was awakened by the slamming of the back door that was downstairs clear in the other wing. The slamming door, echoing throughout the manor, had been carefully locked, as had all the other doors. Concerned, the interior decorator started to hear the shuffling sound of bedroom slippers, like older women would wear. He went to the balcony over the great hall to see if anyone was in the hall below. The moonlight from the undraped windows shone brightly upon the marble floor, making it very bright and easy to see clearly in the hall. When the shuffling entered the great hall, he felt a tingling sensation or a chill of the unseen presence. Feeling afraid, he bellowed at the unseen entity and said, Ethel, if what I'm doing to the house isn't satisfactory, you better tell me before it's too late. The shuffling stopped, so he went back to bed a little shaken. While lying there on his bed, he heard the shuffling start up again, going toward the back door, then heard the slamming of the door once again. Some unseen entity wasn't pleased at first about the fact that electricity was being restored. When the electrician was putting in new wiring, some entity kept foiling his attempts, even undoing the braided cable that was carefully and expertly fed through the conduit and properly connected. From the beginning, the electricity and bell system seemed to have a life of its own. Lights would go on and go off at will, sometimes with self-moving light switches, sometimes not. Bells sounded in the middle of the night, which included the maid's bell in the kitchen as well. Sometimes at night, the family heard footsteps walking throughout the house, with the lights going on and off as the footsteps traveled from room to room. The wiring was checked, but nothing was found to be wrong. Lights in the chandelier in the library would flare up brightly as if to agree with the point made in conversation. A psychic friend of the Bradleys was visiting him in the library. As soon as she walked in, the lights practically danced, flaring up bright, then dimming, then flaring right back up. After she left, the lights calmed down. Before going to work early one morning, Dr. Bradley went to the drawing room to light his cigar with the weighted bulky metallic lighter on the table. Imagine his surprise when the lighter gently rose up by itself in the air and floated slowly then landed softly about a foot away on its side without making a sound. A massive heavy bronze chandelier which hung in the great hall bobbed up and down on its long chain, sometimes as hard as it could go. The Bradleys had reinforced the ceiling clasp so it wouldn't jerk itself loose. While practicing on the baby grand piano in the drawing room, the youngest son was surprised to see the top four keys in the right hand 
being played without any help from him. Mrs. Bradley looked into her purse for a handkerchief she knew she had put in it. She closed the purse and opened it again to find three green plastic mermaids about two inches high lying on top of her missing handkerchief. While raking trash in the front yard, the Bradley's middle son saw out of the corner of his eye a thing floating very slowly through the air, softly landing on the ground. It was a green apple tied to a wire, described as a very weird object. There was no place that it could have come from normally. The Bradleys had really particular taste when it came to Christmas decorations. Only the first-rate, top-notch ones would do. When getting Christmas decorations down from the attic, they found an unknown box labeled Halloween lollipops, and inside there were six crudely made pottery angels who were inelegant, fat, and dumpy. Not the sort of thing the Bradleys would ever consider purchasing. When a friend of theirs pointed out to them that the angels looked pregnant, the Bradleys' attitude changed toward these unattractive angels, as Dr. Bradley was an obstetrician. When the problems with the lights were first happening, Dr. Bradley had a meeting with the famous medium, Arthur Ford, at Ford's home. This medium went into a trance and told him that an elderly couple had lived by themselves for a long time in the mansion. As she liked the place to be completely dark, the wife kept all the blinds pulled over the manor's many windows, keeping everything in the dark. When her husband would have enough of living in the dark, he would angrily go all over the mansion, snapping on the lights, but she would follow right behind him, snapping the lights off again. The medium told Dr. Bradley that they're still doing it. After this meeting, the Bradleys invited the former head housekeeper over for a visit. She immediately noticed how bright and sunny the inside of the manor was and told how her former mistress insisted on having a dark house. As mentioned before, the Bradleys had kept careful records of all the incidents and had discovered that over time, if something out of the established pattern happened, it meant that something big was about to happen. The following two examples make this point. A. When Mrs. Bradley heard big explosive sounds coming from her cabinets at night, she knew the next day was going to be a Lulu. And B. After the lights had come on by themselves five mornings in a row at 4.30, the Bradley boys became very ill, but they did recover. It seems that the spirits of the former owners became fond of the Bradleys, and despite their annoying love of having a bright home instead of a dark one. The Bradleys loved Woodburn Manor, as it was called, as much as the former owners, which must have endeared the whole family to these entities who chose to remain and participate in their lives while watching over them at the same time. Dr. Bradley did write a book about their experiences called Psychic Phenomena, Revelations and Experiences, which expounds on his personal theories. The entities of Ethel and Hubert work are reportedly still haunting the place. Dr. Bradley sold the mansion in 1980. The people who bought it didn't stay long, but the mansion is now owned by people willing to live with eccentric ghosts. The property was sold to a private golf club, and that is mostly open during the day and early evening, and they leave the home to the spirits at night. So according to these very limited examples, one relatively new house and one nearly century-old edifice, it makes no difference the age of the structure. We hear and read stories all the time where people witness phantasms float through walls where in times past doors have existed. Others report spirits which appear 
as though they are sunk in the ground, betraying the truth that inches of dirt and foundation stones have been brought in since the entity's lifetime. Other stories we hear speak of objects, either indigenous to the home or property, or brought in by later residents, have some form of spiritual attachment. Do hauntings happen? I believe they do. Are possessions possible? I believe they are. Are all stories or photos or videos of hauntings real? Absolutely not. At least that's my opinion. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I enjoy bringing it to you. Remember that on Mondays you can listen to Aaron Hunter with Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. And on Tuesdays you can listen to Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show. On Wednesdays, me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments. And on Thursdays, you can listen to Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. If you want to download the app for Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast's family, you can go to your app store on whether it's Apple or Android. You can download the Real Paranormal Activity app. And when you install that in your device, you can get all four of our shows without having to go to a podcatcher to get them. Well, obviously my allergies are starting to kick in a little bit, so I'm going to call it a night. I hope you've had a good time listening to this. I hope you have a great week. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.